This episode is sponsored by Anchor, the official host of Wellness and Wanderlust. Anchor is the easiest way to create your dream podcast. With Anchor, you can record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other popular podcast apps. You can even make money from your podcast using Anchor. Anchor is your one-stop shop with everything you need to make a podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hey, hey, Wellness and Wanderlust fam. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I am so excited for another fabulous week on the show and grateful to each and every one of you for being a part of this journey with me. As you may notice from my voice this week, I promise I am not a little boy going through puberty. I am just recovering from laryngitis, so I'll be keeping my opening remarks short and sweet today. But this is an episode that you are truly going to love. This week, I am chatting with Brianne Davis, an actress, director, and producer, podcast host, and author of Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, which is an absolute must read. Brianne most recently starred on the History Channel's Six and has also appeared on shows like Lucifer, Casual, Rosewood, True Blood, The Mentalist, and more. With more than a decade of recovery as a sex and love addict, Brianne is the host of the popular mental health podcast, Secret Life, and recently published her best-selling book on the topic as well. In our conversation, Brianne and I discuss what sex and love addiction is and many of the misconceptions around this type of addiction, especially in the way that it manifests in women. We talk about trauma bonding, mistakes we're making in the dating world today, how our early childhood experiences play into sex and love addiction, and the compare and despair trap that comes from our social media usage. Now, this is such a good conversation. We get into so many great topics within the hour. So enough from me. Without further ado, let's hear from Brianne Davis. Hi, Brianne. Thank you so much for joining us at Wellness and Wanderlust. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I am so happy to have you on. I'm really excited for today's topic and to really get into your story. Before we really dive in, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? Oh, always such a good time when you have to talk about yourself. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm Brianne Davis. I've been a working actress for 25 years in Hollywood. You know, I've been in shows like Lucifer recently, Six on History and A&E, Jarhead, Prom Night, Casual, pretty much any show I've been a guest star on or on. And I just, you know, love my job as an actress, but it's definitely based in fantasy and becoming somebody else and being an attention seeker, validation seeker and 12 years ago, I found out that I was a sex and love addict and I've been in recovery for sex and love addiction the last 12 years. I have 12 years of recovery in SLAA, which is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. It's a 12-step program like AA. And recently, I spoke out uh, about being a sex and love addict in recovery because I was so tired of the narrative just being a guy going to rehab for cheating on his wife and then he's all better and not a sex addict anymore. And I just, I saw these young people coming into the program suffering from not being able to connect, not fear of intimacy, fear of being loved, low self-esteem, low self-worth. And it just made me speak out. So I wrote an article for HuffPost 
a couple of years ago before my book came out that's called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And yeah, just to be of service and help say, hey, this is what it's like being a woman in recovery for sex and love addiction that's addicted to fantasy, toxic relationships, wanting to be loved 24-7. And that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I do my podcast, Secret Life, to help others release secrets as well. So yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Well, again, I'm so happy to have you on. First of all, I loved you on Lucifer. I'm such a big fan of the show and you were fantastic. Uh, But I really love what you're doing. I think sex and love addiction, I think especially the way it's been portrayed in the media, we really do think of it as a very male thing and very, you know, it, everything kind of fits into one box. But as I've read your book and I've listened to you um, on your podcast and on other podcasts, you really... I think women, especially, you can really see yourself a lot of times in what sex and love addiction actually is. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey with sex and love addiction, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, 12 years ago, I hit my bottom is what we call it. When you hit that moment where you're like, I either have to get help or I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. It's that dark night of the soul. And I remember I hit a ton of bottoms throughout the time, but this one really hit me was like, I was on location shooting a movie, a mentor of mine died. And I just started flirting, intriguing with people, just tons of guys. And I was like, what is going on? I have a boyfriend at home I really care about and love as much as I could love. But here I am flirting and trying to get attention and validation other places. And it was just like, oh my God, am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Am I going to be going from relationship to relationship Ending them as soon as that love high wore off, as soon as those butterflies, that first touch, the falling in love phase, the honeymoon phase, the pink cloud phase is what we call it. Am I going to be chasing that the rest of my life? And that's what I'm addicted to. So I call myself a sex and love addict, but here's the thing. I've never had a one night stand. I haven't had many sexual partners, but what makes me a sex addict and a sex and love addict program is because I use my sexuality as a currency. I use it to get my self-worth. I use it to manipulate and control other people and have power over them. So what I, how I explain that is I go out into the world and I'm like, give me attention, love, validation. And the moment it's not a high for me anymore, I'll have one foot in that relationship and be looking for my next relationship, my next victim, I like to call it, you know, like the energy sucker, the raping of other people's energy. And I've done that my whole life. I started this addiction. You know, I had sexual trauma, which I didn't realize I had. It was very deep. And that was through eight and a half years of therapy twice a week. I had to do that deep dive into the inner child self and see that there was sexual trauma when I was younger. And then through that, I got to look at like, when did my addiction start? Oh, it started when I was in middle school. When I kissed my boyfriend's best friend and it was like heroin shot up my entire body and I've been chasing that high ever since and I just was been going from relationship to relationship to relationship and it's exhausting. It's exhausting to realize that you have based your whole life on outside validation and that's people, places, and things. But for me, especially, I snort people. I drink people just like alcoholics drink alcohol to make my life feel worthy and significant. You know, there's these 40 questions on SLAA website. You can type in 40 self-diagnosed questionnaire SLAA. And it's questions like, do you 
feel like if you're not in a relationship, your life is unbearable? Are you thinking someone can fix you? Have you had more sexual partners than you can remember? Have you used your sexuality as a tool to get what you want? And if you look in our society, so many people do that and nobody talks about it. And we amplify toxic relationships. So that's I would create these relationships where I had a mask on, not being my true self because I didn't have my true selves because it was taken away so young. And on top of it, I came from a background where I didn't have a healthy marriage mirrored to me, which I think a lot of people have experienced. You know, my parents, unfortunately, were not great partners to each other. They didn't hug and kiss each other, say they loved each other, never saw them slept in the same bed, fought constantly about money. So when I looked at marriage and commitment, it was like, ugh, I don't want that. I don't want kids. I'm too selfish and self-seeking. So it was a bunch of those realizations when I was younger of how I acted out with male attention. And I'm so glad that you shared that too, because I do think, again, there's such a misconception that when we hear sex and love addiction, I think we really do think to like the Tiger Woods and, you know, Mm -hmm. the the man with, you know, lots and lots of different women, one night stands and things like that, but to recognize that it's also how we show up in relationships. And, you know, I took the 40 questions myself and while I won't Mm -hmm. share my number for um, my parents listen to the show. (laughs) it was a lot higher than I anticipated and realizing that there were a lot of different behaviors and things that I was unaware of that are actually pretty unhealthy. And the way that it's mirrored to us, even in TV shows, that all encompassing love that now kind of looking at it as I've gotten older, a lot of the relationships that as kids, we really looked up to on television and in movies. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, that's horrible, right? Yes. (laughs) Well, that's why I wrote it in the book. You know, I wrote it from that point of view that people like you that might have some of these characteristics or traits, but they're not like at their bottom where they can look and say, oh my God, I do these things also. And that's why I wrote it from, you know, a fiction point of view where it's anybody, the main characters, Roxanne, anybody can have some Roxanne in them. Anybody can Mm -hmm. go outside of their not to feel their feelings and get their self-worth from outside influences, right? So that's why I wrote Mm -hmm. it is to help people even like you that is not a sex and love addict be like, oh my God, I've done that. I've manipulated and controlled. I use my sexuality here. I flirted when I probably shouldn't have, you know, all those things. I look at the likes on Instagram. I model my relationship like a movie. And I talk about it in the book, but that movie, The Notebook, is like a no-go movie for any sex and love addicts. And, you know, you cannot watch it. But if you think about it, she was in a love triangle, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and and we idolize that, right? You look at that and you're like, oh, I want that relationship. It's like, no, she cheated on her fiance with Ryan Gosling. Like that ain't a great relationship starter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I think we think that, um, you know, like even in that movie, I think his name was Lon, the the other guy that she was with. Uh And he, he was so nice and such a good person. But, uh, you know, it's almost portrayed as being boring, being in, you know, kind of a healthy, stable. Yeah. Yeah. With clear communication and someone accepting you exactly how you are. And he trusted her. And then she went off with her ex that was toxic and they fought all the time and her parents didn't like him. It's just crazy. And we're like, ooh, I want that. I want that. Because that's the thing. 
our society makes us believe in this high. Like we need this hit. It's it's called, we call it a cattle prog jolt. Like we need that jolt of electricity, that passion to show that it's real love. And it's like, if someone is giving you that hit, you better run the other way. I even tell people when they're dating and I work with a lot of clients, like if you get the butterflies and like that, like high from somebody, that's actually not a good sign. That's not a good sign of a stable relationship because that goes away. So you have to look at the person that you're in front of you when you're dating them and say, do I like this person as a person? Do they have qualities that I'd want to be friends with? Are they reliable? Those are traits that create a long-term relationship. That's such a great point too. I know I'm certainly a sucker for the butterflies. and We all are. It's the best high in the world. It's like a cocaine. I've never done cocaine, but that's what people say. It's like falling in love is like the ultimate high. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, they talk about romantic love or passionate love and companionate love and the, you know, the person that can be your companion. I mean, that's the person that's going to be there through the highs and lows and the old age, the getting older, but that's true. But do you know, like I, they should teach that in school. No one ever taught me. What does that look like? How do you deepen intimacy? Because intensity does not equal intimacy. And no one taught me that. So when I looked at relationships, if that intensity was not there, then I didn't think we were really intimate. And really, we were just trauma bonding and playing off each other's emotional highs and lows. Can you explain trauma bonding for our listeners a little bit? Yes. Oh, my God. We all love to trauma bond, right? We, like, Mm -hmm. attach ourselves to other people that have similar wounds. So if you come from a broken home, you usually pick someone that comes from a broken home and hasn't done the inner child work to see where they didn't get the support they need, the tools they need, healthy relationship tools and all that stuff that we lack. So we trauma bond thinking we're getting closer and connecting with someone else and that's intimacy, but really it's not. It's based on a negative thing that happened in your life. And usually after that honeymoon stage goes away, you guys start triggering each other's trauma and it just usually blows up in your face my experience. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would imagine that's the experience for probably most people. And I think I, I've certainly fallen victim to that myself. And I'd love to know because I think taking the 40 questions mm-hmm. and learning a little bit more about, you know, sex and love addiction, I think a lot of people can see at least parts of themselves, especially reading your book. When do we know that it's addiction and that it's starting to affect our lives? Well, there's a couple of signs that I always tell people to look at. And that's why, again, I wrote the book. I wrote it so anybody can pick it up because it's not just my story. It's other stories over the 10 years, 12 years. It's sponsees, people I've worked with, dreams I've had myself in this book. And I just really wanted a wide range of what a sex and love addict looks like. But the first thing I always say is, is there drama in your relationship? I'm talking partners, I'm talking family members, I'm talking friends, because this addiction hits every relationship in your life. You have to clean up every single relationship. So the first thing I say is there instability. Do you have people that don't show up for you? Are they unavailable? For instance, a lot of my work, as you saw in the book, especially in chapter eight and nine, 
is me looking at my friendships and then chapter 11, working relationships in my career. It's like I kept picking unavailable people because I was unavailable. If you keep picking toxic relationships, it's because you, there's something in you that gets high off of them, that you're trying to get this unavailable person to love you because you don't love yourself. So those are the things I always say, but you really have to look at every relationship, say, do I have a bunch of people that don't show up for me? If that's true, then I'm not showing up for myself. How am I not showing up for myself? And then it's like breaking down the moments where you say, okay, I'm not going to be friends with that person anymore. Okay, I'm not going to text that ex. Okay, I'm not going to go on the apps and swipe left and right looking for this hit, this validation. And then you find yourself an hour later doing it or a week later doing it. And it's that compulsion. Like for an example, I have that with Instagram sometimes where I'm like, I'm not going to go on Instagram until four o'clock right before my son comes home. And then I find myself absently, you know, just opening the app and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I like close it. That compulsion that we're even unaware of that we do is a sign of attention, validation, needing likes, needing all that. So it's very, very slippery. It's hard to point out, but it's when you set goals and boundaries for yourself with a person, with social media, with friendships, with family members, and then you find yourself going back on your word. Does that make sense? It's a long answer, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that's fantastic. And I love that you pointed out the social media too, because I do think that that, you know, I, I look at myself, like I'll open the app like two minutes after I just closed it, nothing has changed. No one has posted anything, but I still need to check and see what are the likes looking like. And they do make the the apps on purpose to be addictive. Oh, yeah. They made it like a slot machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, that definitely plays into our dating and our relationships as well. Yeah. I mean, they specifically design dating apps and social media to be like you're gambling. They didn't have to do that swipe thing, you know, the swipe left, swipe right. That is an addictive physical action that we get addicted to. And they did it specifically so that we get that high. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's like, I, I hate to say this, it's so fun to, to swipe the picture and to see the different things move on the page and everything. And that's so bad. Um, but I, but I think also pointing out how other relationships are, I think that that does play a huge role in then how we show up for the romantic relationships too. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, especially with the family. I didn't think that this program, this work would hit so much on the family aspect, but it really does. I mean, they say AA is the last house on the block you want to go to, but slaw is the shack in the back. Like you do not want to go to. It's like the end of the line. They call it the PhD of all the other programs because the first thing when you're born is relations. And those relations are usually with your parents. So after you get rid of the toxic partners and then you're looking at the unavailable friendships you've been holding on to, then that last layer, which is so painful and 
that's why chapter five, six, and seven in my book was just, it's like walk through the fire and let it burn. All those rules, you know, being willing to dalt up and admit to your mistakes, looking at the character defects of yourself. But that last layer is really connected to the parents and how you are, how you related to your parents and what was mirrored to you. And it's just so painful to do that work and look at, wow, I I never had the tools. I never had the chance for a healthy relationship, especially being the latchkey kid when you grow up with movies and television. And then my therapist, Dr. Kath, in the book literally was like, you pick the worst career for your addiction. You live in fantasy. You have unrealistic expectations of people. You want to be someone else 24-7. You compare yourself to other people. And you want to fall in love all the time. I mean, that's what an actress does all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I didn't realize, I think, until more recently, just how much of a role our family relationships do play in those mm-hmm. early childhood experiences. Because I know I've been really starting to think about my attachment style a little bit more and how some of the experiences when I was really little have shaped my relationships as an adult and some of the good and the bad and I, you talk about a concept in the book I had never heard of before, and I find this so fascinating, emotional incest. Can yes. you talk a little bit about how that plays in oh, and what that is? Yes. First of all, when I learned that I did have an emotional incest relationship with my father, it was hard. Even that word incest is really, really hard, and it's sickening to your stomach. But emotional incest is really hard to pinpoint more than the physical incest. So emotional incest is when a parent and a child are too intertwined, where the child gives their energy to the parent to fill them. So what happens is really a parent is supposed to be giving energy to the child. But when it's turned around and and the child becomes the person's partner, for instance, does your parents share way too much personal information with you, especially as a young age? Do they talk about their fights, their personal issues? Are they telling you they're lonely all the time? Make mommy feel better by giving you a hug. Why aren't you giving me attention? Even as an adult, you can have emotional incest with your parents if your parents are calling all the time and in that umbilical cord is not cut where it's like, I'm my own person. I'm not here to fill you parent, you know? So I really found myself after intense therapy and writing this book and talking to other emotional incest survivors that I know is that I just was getting, my energy was getting completely taken from my parents. Like it was just never reciprocated. So I just felt like it was always about them. Like make mommy feel better, make dad feel like I'm his partner in life. Like still to this day, when my dad says to me, you're the best thing I've ever done. I say to him, I don't want to be the best thing you've ever done. Like, great, you you love me, but I don't want to give you your self-worth in this world. And I think being a parent myself now, I see what an easy and slippery slope that is. Because, you know, when mommy is crying, I would love my son to give me a hug. He's not even four years old and, and I have to go, no, it's not his job to make me feel better. It is, he is his own person. And also, you know, that saying is like, well, I made you, you're my child. It's like, no, he is his own person. I don't own him. 
my job as a parent is to give him the rules, teach him morals, teach him values, teach him how to be self-sufficient, how, how to balance a checkbook or whatever it is. But my parental role is not to have ownership over my child. He is not mine. He is his own individual. I think that's so important, especially for parents listening, um, you know, to really be keeping in mind. And it's a tough line to walk between, you know, being a close family and being an enmeshed family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's those sayings like mommy's little boy, daddy's little girl. It's like, no, 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 no. That's actually not healthy. Like, I just have to say that. That's one of the things where it's like, then the son feels obligated to be mommy's little little partner, little boy, you know? So it's, it is a, such a slippery slope and I'm a parent too. And I even have to check myself on a daily basis. Yeah. Do you have any tips for parents listening to the show on just how to kind of avoid putting their child in that situation and kind of avoiding yes. any, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I do. 12 years of recovery with this. Yes, I do. I mean, I just saw a TikTok the other day, which I have to mention, it was so interesting where a mom acted like she was crying. And then it was like how the toddler comforts the mom. And it just made me so sick to my stomach. And 12 years ago, I would have looked at that, even though TikTok wasn't around, but I would have looked at that and been like, oh, that's so sweet. Oh, look at her, look at her, love her mom, you know, that kind of thing. And I look at that now and it's like, it's teaching that child that she has to make her mom feel better. And a child doesn't have the emotional detachment to be responsible for that parent crying. So here's an example. When I'm upset and crying and my son is coming at me, I say, no, you don't have to hug mommy and make mommy feel better. Mommy's feeling her feelings right now. And it's okay to be upset. It's okay. Mama has to cry. I can be upset. Thank you for offering a hug, but it's not your responsibility to fix mom. Like I literally have that conversation with my three-year-old. And now when I get upset, he doesn't feel that pressure. So the other day I had, I got some bad news about some career thing and I was in my room crying and he didn't come in and he just said, oh, mommy's upset. It's okay. And he went and did his thing. So it's like, that was really powerful for me because when I was such a young child, I felt I was responsible for my parents' feelings and had to like make it up for them if they were having a bad day. Yeah. And that definitely, it shows up later in your life for yeah. sure. I know I've- It's that codependency. Yeah. I was always the peacemaker. I think oh, a lot of times- The worst. <laughs> the worst my role. Yes. My sister had that role. That's a hard <laughs> one. That's a hard one to break the codependency, like peacemaker role. Oh, yeah. I mean, it definitely shows up in my relationships and the way that I handle stress and all of that. And I, I had a great childhood, but at the same time, it's definitely something that, you know, has certainly stuck with me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I think also letting your child know that he is his own person and kind of that nobody belongs to anyone. Nobody. I think is so powerful. Yes. And that's what I, that's the best thing about this work that I've done and, and writing this book also when I, I, I don't think you've read chapter 11 yet, but it was a really powerful where it's like, we, we are born alone and we die alone and nobody is responsible for us or have ownership of us. And there is no soulmate out there or person that's going to complete us. And I had this moment and it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. It's like, 
I married myself. I became my own soulmate. So there's this moment where it's like, I belong to myself and I have to love myself more than anything else in this world in a very not egocentric place. So then I can love other people in this world. And I don't have unrealistic expectations on them to fill me and give me my self-worth. And if they don't live up to those expectations, if I put it on them, I usually resent them and start turning those feelings into negativity. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's so powerful just to to find that love with yourself. And I think that's the, I think it's the internal, the eternal struggle for so many of us that yeah. we really do feel that, yeah, that somebody is going to complete us, that we are not whole until we find that person. And then especially in today's day and age too, being, you know, anyone listening in their twenties and thirties and forties who are single and have those well-meaning relatives or friends like, Hey, really need someone kind of thing. So all of those expectations and, and societal pressures too. And then I think we dive into something that's not healthy for us. And we expect that to, to fill some area that we're not filling ourselves in your recovery process, how did you get to that point? Because I think that's so powerful and something that many of us struggle with. I mean, that's a that's a that's a million dollar question. <laughs> like, how did I? I think the first thing is you know being willing to look at it, being willing to look at that you are constantly looking outside of yourself. And you mentioned, you know, that person we're looking for, but really it's everything that like new purse, that car, that job, when I get that, when I get that, when I look like that, when I lose five pounds, when I do this, it's like, then I'll meet it, then it will be there. And it's like, no, 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 that's like a destination addiction, which is a tied to love and sex addiction, where it's like, when I get that, then I will have this. And it's like, no, you are actually complete and whole exactly as you are. And to get to that place, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of withdrawal is what we call it. And I talk about it in the book in chapter one, two, and three. It's like that emotional withdrawal from using those things is absolutely brutal. Mine was nine months. I cried every day for nine months. I mean, crawling at the carpet, snake coming out of my soul, crying, where it was just like all the pain I've caused others, all the pain I caused myself, all the rejection, the abandonment, the low self-worth, the things I did that I wasn't proud of, you know, things that were done to me. I had to feel all that stuff to start the healing. So the first thing is like, feel it. Don't stuff it down with a show on Netflix. Don't stuff it down going shopping. Don't stuff it down with going on the apps, looking for your next person you're going to like get high off of or fall in love with quickly and then burn out very quickly usually. So that's the first thing is you have to be able to feel it. It's that walk through that rule, walk through the fire and let it burn. And that's why I made the book, you know, my book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict longest title ever. But that's (laughs) why I made it like a self-help book on top of it. It's 10 rules where you can look at them and there's questions in it and things you can look at where it really helps you do that deep dive into yourself to then change your behaviors, to change your expectations, to change the people you're attracted to and that are attracted to you. But it's it's a long, long process. And I I can say when I hit eight years of recovery that that's when I was like, oh my God, I really do actually have myself now. I can walk out into this world and my energy is mine. Like I hold myself where no one else 
yeah, people can upset me. They can say certain things, but really no one affects my insides like they used to. That's amazing. And I do love that you pointed out as well, just the looking outside of yourself in all areas, because Mm -hmm. I do think, you know, you have a chapter on comparison and that's something that, yeah, so many of us. It's the worst chapter to write. Oh my God, I hated (laughs) that chapter. Chapter seven, compare and despair. Stop like getting yourself worth. Oh my God, it was torture. Just so you know, absolutely torture to write. (laughs) I I do think it's, I mean, especially with social media, as we talked Mm -hmm. about, it's so easy because I don't even have to leave my house to compare now. I can turn on the TV. I can check my phone. You know, it's on my phone. I could even get a notification that will trigger something like that. I've had to, I've actually turned off a lot of push notifications for social media. So it just, just to kind of remove a little bit of that, but what are some things we can do to kind of avoid the compare and despair? Well, that's also the million dollar question. That's still my main character defect. That's the one I go to when I'm bored, when I don't get something I want that I think I need, you know, so the compare and despair one is one that I still struggle with on a daily basis. What you're doing is great. I took off all those push notifications. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I just say, I'm going to go on and post this reel and then I'm going to get off the rest of the day. Like, so... I have to make those boundaries for myself because my addict self will find myself losing hours, losing time, looking, oh, they liked, I have to respond. And it's like, no, you don't. You can go on with your life. And it's also not posting everything about your life on social media. That for me is way too toxic, way too enmeshing with the outside world, you know, so you have to really do that diligence. And so, and I have this saying, I pray every morning and every night. And I say, I say, please, God, remove compare and despair. Let me turn it into trust and faith and know that my path is my path and nobody else's. And it's a constant reminder to me, like, I can never be anybody else in this world. That's a fantasy in itself. I'm never going to be J-Lo. I'm never going to have J-Lo's life. You know, not that I want her life at all. I, I, you know, how many marriages has she gone through? Let's just say, like, I don't want that life. But the point is, it's like, I can't be anybody else I compare myself to. That's their journey, not mine. And just being in this program and being around A-list celebrities, people that are multimillionaires, people that kill themselves over this addiction, commit suicide that has everything you can imagine. I mean, I just thought Anthony Bourdain had everything, everything. And he didn't do that internal work because he had the chemical addiction and and he put it into his workaholism. And now he, he killed himself over a girl cheating on him. And it's like his love addiction was out of control. And it's like, you can look at anybody that has everything and you don't know the struggle they go through. And I've seen it on, on this recovery side and helping people with this addiction is you can have everything and it means nothing if you don't have yourself. So that's what I always try to turn to when those pictures come up and I'm triggered and I'm like, oh, but I don't have that. I don't have that pool in my backyard. It's like that pool is not going to make you happy. That pool is not going to give you your self-worth. That's just a thing, a material thing that actually means nothing. You, You live and die with yourself. You're not taking any of it with you. So that's why I try the tools I use to remind myself to stay in my own lane. Like my journey is my journey, not anybody else's. 
Absolutely. And on the flip side of that, no one else is Brian Davis. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) I'm just thinking, please, that's like a journey. I don't know if anybody wants to go through. You've read my book. It's brutal. It's like raw and vulnerable. And it's like, oh my God, it's like a roller coaster ride. So I don't know if anybody wants that journey. But I think we do see, like, when you are on the outside of, you know, other people's lives and seeing all the great things and not, because we don't post about our struggles. I mean, some people do, and we're starting Mm -hmm. to see a little more vulnerability on social media. I'm trying to be more vulnerable on social media. Yeah, me too. Seeing the, the dream relationships on social media, I remember I used to post about one of my, in my early 20s, I would post all these great photos with my boyfriend at the time. And mm. what people didn't see were the really dysfunctional tendencies of the relationship and that we were miserable. Yeah. But that's what we put out there. And I'm sure that people probably saw it and thought, oh, what a, what a nice couple. But we, we don't see, and you don't see the other struggles that people are going through. And yeah, it, it it's something that we kind of have to remember and kind of get some perspective on a little bit. Yeah, and I do I love that you mentioned, you know, being more vulnerable on social media. And I think that is completely important, but I also think there is something about doing that for yourself. Like there's moments where I see people I know that are putting, you know, their crying videos or things on social media and it's like you're still looking for attention and validation through that struggle. You're still looking for someone to say, hang in there, you're going to be okay. And sometimes that healing work has to be done alone. Like my healing work of those nine nine months where I cried every day, I got off social media. I wasn't on for a year and a half because I had to go through that darkness by myself to get to the light. Because if I allowed someone in to say, oh, you're going to be okay. Even my boyfriend at the time, we had a rule. He could not tell me like come in when I was crying. Like it was a, a rule we set. If I'm crying, do not come and make me feel better. Ask me what's going on. Because I had to go through that pain and let it out to get to the other side. And if he would have came in and comforted me, I wouldn't have been able to process it and go through it myself and see that I can get on the other side of that. But you do need professionals. I did need a group, you know, my recovery group to reach out when you do need support, but in a way where it wasn't a validation, attention, the likes and all of that. So it's a very, very, very uh, tricky thing to do, I believe, especially at the beginning of recovery, the beginning of a healing process of a metamorphosis, you know, as the butterfly I talk about in the caterpillar, that process you have to do alone. Yeah, I do. I definitely do see some of that on social media, the the crying videos. That is something that I, I often wonder who is this really for? Yeah. I'm like, if I'm going through that breakdown, you better believe I'm not picking up my phone and doing a video of it. Like, no, I don't know who has that thought to do that because when you're in that place, it's like there's a healing that's happening and picking up that video and filming it. It's like you're stopping that process and you're making it a performance piece. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. And I have friends that are in this program that are really big on social media. And when they do that, I want to call and shake them and be like, stop doing it. You're stopping your healing process. 
Yeah, you're in the middle of a vulnerable moment, but then you need to, you know, get the the iPhone tripod <laughs> out and make sure that, you know, or whatever, you know, it, it really does take you out of that moment. And it's just not it's not that healing moment that it could be. Yep. Mm -hmm. You're stifling it. And that's why I even tell a lot of people, you know, I spoke out with the Huff Post article I wrote, then the, you know, podcast, and then my book came out. But that's after 10 years of recovery. I could not speak out before that because Mm -hmm. I had to do my personal journey, my healing. So when people are like, oh, that's so awesome, you spoke out. And I was like, yeah, but that's a decade of recovery under my belt. Do not, you know, the number one rule is don't talk about slaw. Don't share about sex and love addiction. Do your healing. Don't share it with your friends and families and significant others. And a part of me gets annoyed with that because it's like, if we keep it a secret, then it stays in this shame and stigma and especially as women, you know, but Mm -hmm. there is something about when you're first doing this healing, you got to keep it to yourself. It's an inner process. It's not an outside process. Yeah. And I, I think that's so important for us to keep it. And you're right, especially as women, because again, you know, the, and the fact that you have shared your story after having, you know, really gone through it and had these experiences and you do feel that, you know, that ownership of yourself Mm-hmm. And, and all of that, where you're at the point where you can share it, now others are able to really learn about this type of addiction, because I think it's something that a lot more people are struggling with than, than they are even aware of. Oh, yeah. At the end of the book, I do a quote. It's like 30% of the United States are sex and love addicts, something like I can't remember the exact percentage, and 38% of those are women. And that statistic was in 2017. And the rooms in just Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous have blown up. They're all over the world. I speak, I speak all over the world. And it's like, this is a problem that is, especially with the porn being more available, you know, the the dating apps. It's amplifying our disconnection from ourselves and amplifying our fantasy-driven, filtered realities we think that are real. And it's just, it's becoming an epidemic, especially in young boys. Young boys are having a really hard time with intimacy and connection. And it's going to show, it says it's an epidemic for this younger generation. And that's why I spoke out. Like I said, I got my 10-year chip in Los Angeles at a meeting, there was 80 people around. And after speaking, these young boys and young kids that were 19, 20 year old were saying like, I cannot have a committed relationship. I feel completely numb. I feel like I don't know how to have intimacy. And it just was this moment for me, like, okay, you've been of service for 10 years in this community. Now you have to think bigger. So now I can go out in the world and say, hey, I'm a recovering sex and love addict and I have no shame and I have no stigma. Here's my, here's the horrible worst things I've ever done, thought, almost did, you know, and you can say anything to me. You can call me a name, which I've been called. You can send me a stupid dick pic, which is disgusting. And it's like, it just goes off my shoulders. Like I found myself and you can't take myself anymore. And here's my stories. Here's my journey. Here's things I've heard over the years. Here's other people's stories. And now it doesn't belong to me. Now it's yours. Mm-hmm. Here's my book. You read it and help and help yourself get out of whatever toxic behavior, toxic relationship you're in. So That's how I'm giving back these days is like my ripple effect used to be hurting people because I was hurt. You know, that stupid saying, Mm -hmm. hurt people, hurt people, but it's true. 
Um, now my ripple effect is if I can help one person not hurt somebody else or hurt themselves, then I've done my job. And I think that I think that's so beautiful to be of service and to be able to share that with others because you know, and we hadn't even gotten into that, but with the young boys, I, I was going to ask you about how porn, you know, play because I I do worry so much about this next generation and what's available mm-hmm. to them and how it is going to shape their expectations. Yeah, because the the porn is becoming their reality, and the real relationship is becoming the fantasy. So it's just this mind-blowing thing where they don't even know. And even young girls are watching porn. It's not just boys. You know, I have a lot of girlfriends that are having trouble with their ideas of what their sexuality has to look like because of porn. So it's really affecting both genders and all genders, actually. You know, I work with a lot of trans people and it's affecting them how they have to show up a certain way. And it's like we are painting such an ugly picture of what our sexuality looks like are over-sexualizing ourselves, especially young girls to get that validation that like, if I over-sexualize myself, oh, then someone's going to love me. And it's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. So yeah, I'm, I'm very nervous too. You know, I have a young son and don't think I haven't thought of, he's probably going to see porn by the age of eight Eight years old, they're saying the statistic is that's when young boys view their porn for the first time. And I just know at a young age, I viewed porn really, really early. I saw Romeo and Juliet, like I talk about in the book. Like I was definitely in that culture of like, oh, free love. You know, this is what sexuality looks like. And it's like, it was so damaging to me. So I can't imagine for my son. So I'm trying to figure out ways to protect him and not just you know, keep him in my house where he can't do anything. <laughs> wouldn't That wouldn't help him either, you know, because then he'd like go out in the world and act crazy because he doesn't know how to handle it in, in a healthy way. Yeah. And I think that's something that's like, it, it's another really hard line to walk is where, where is it unhealthy and where is it sex positivity? And mm-hmm. Because we want to be sex positive, but I think a lot of times we are approaching it more from the societal expectation or from what we think is going to make other people happy. From all of this, like what mm-hmm. mistakes are we, when, when we're trying to date and in our relationships, what are some mistakes that we're making? Oh, so many. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are. There is a lot. Well, first of all, the first thing I say is we, as a society, especially in dating, are communicating a lot through text messages. And it's really, really damaging because it makes you feel like you know the person, you're intimate, already oversharing, you know, sexting. That actually is very damaging when you first start dating someone. So a lot of sex and love addicts in my program, especially, takes texting off the table. Like you cannot text at all. Um, Before you go on a first date, the most texting, you'd be like, okay, here's the place we're meeting. I'll talk to you then. And what happened, I'm even working with someone right now and they, the person kept texting them and they literally had to say, I'm sorry, I'm actually don't like this communicating before I actually meet someone. So I look forward to meeting you, whatever, Thursday night. I can't wait to meet you. So it's like putting those boundaries about first meeting someone because we're so quick to be over intimate. And that's when the trauma mm-hmm. bonding happens. That's when the love bombing happens. You know, that's when yeah. that's when all those horrible characteristics and then the gaslighting comes in, you know, afterwards. So it's just, it's just stay away from it. That's the number one rule I say, stay away from it. And also have a dating plan. Nobody has a dating plan. 
or a red flags list. And I really talk about that in chapter 12. Like, how do you healthy date? And that's what the second book, um, I'm writing it right now. I'm in rewrites for the second book, The Secret Life, is like how Roxanne healthy dates through her next year of recovery. And that's what I talk about is how do you do that in a way where you're staying truthful to yourself, you're showing up vulnerably, and you're having no expectations on anyone else. It's very difficult. So you'll definitely get more tips in book two. I well, I cannot wait for that personally. <laughs> um, but it, you're so right with the communicate. Like I know so many people that will have these like marathon conversations with the person, and they haven't even met in person yet. Worst. Don't do it. <laughs> I know I had done it in the past, but it made me feel a little uncomfortable because you do you end up coming in with all these weird expectations of the person that maybe you didn't have before. And aside from maybe having nothing to talk about when you finally get there at that point, but yeah, um, but you're so right. It makes me so uncomfortable. I've definitely received unsolicited photos oh, um, yeah. <laughs> in those situations, but it's like, who thinks that's okay? But you know, it's definitely, I think ingrained into our society at this point, I, I can't tell you any girl that I know, you know, around a certain age who at least was single, who hasn't been on the receiving end of one of those and well just think about it like would you go and meet someone and show them your your goods like Mm -hmm. don't do it and don't allow yourself to be vulnerable to getting it and if you're doing those text mess exchanges you're opening yourself up to that person showing up however they want to and I and I was working with somebody and they said Well, I've been in a long distance relationship. I know everything about him. And I just had to keep reminding her, no, you don't. Because until you're in person with this person, you actually don't know them. And then when she met him in person, she was like, oh my God, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I said, because you were living in fantasy and he wasn't living in fantasy with you. You cannot show Mm -hmm. up as your full person unless you're in front of someone and you have that like energy exchange. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I've, especially with the dating apps over the years where I had very, like, I had certain expectations of the person and you're so disappointed by the end of it because they don't live up to the fantasy and maybe, maybe they, maybe they would have, or maybe they wouldn't, but at the same time, you're not setting yourself up for that disappointment in the same way. Well, that's why it's the characteristic in slaw. One of the main characteristics is characteristic number 12. We assign magical qualities to others. We idealize and pursue them. And then we blame them for not fulfilling our fantasies and expectations. It's one of the top 12 signs of sex and love addiction. Wow. That's something that especially, you know, you think you think about the notebook and all of that. I mean, right? I, I think everybody listening at one point or another has certainly has certainly fallen into that, myself included. And yeah. I think so that's, that's my question yeah. for you of the day. Where Are you assigning magical qualities to somebody? Are you pursuing them? And then when they don't live up to it, are you blaming them? Like that's the question of the day for anybody listening. <laughs> And I think that's so important for us to really be thinking about whether you're currently in a relationship or you're in the dating world now and exploring that kind of trying to understand, you know, is is that something that you're doing? Well, even with friendships. Yeah. It's in family members. Do you assign magical qualities to your friendships? Do you pursue them and then blame them when they don't show up how you want them to? Family members. 
I have a family member that's emotionally unavailable. I keep trying to hope they're going to be unavailable. I sign these magical qualities thinking, oh, I'm going to go see this person and they're going to be different. And then when mm-hmm. I get there, they, they're the exact same family member. And it's like, I just did it again. I just effed myself again. I assigned yeah. magical qualities to them. I pursued it. And then they didn't show up that way. And now I'm blaming them. Like we do it with everybody. Yeah. so for for those listening who I think everybody can see bits and pieces of themselves in at least some of these qualities you know Mm -hmm. maybe not in all if someone is listening to the show and they think I might have a problem what do you recommend what resources are available for someone who thinks they might be a sex and love addict or at the very least they think what I'm doing is not working and Mm -hmm. is harmful to me Well, that's a great question. That's why I say always look at those 40 questions, the 40 questionnaire SLAA. Read my book, not because I I want you to. I just wrote it to help people. I didn't write it for me, but I wrote it in a way where it's like a film and a movie. So it's really easy to read. It's really entertaining, but it educates you on this addiction. You can also pick up the SLAA book, which is great, but it's a little more dense. You know, you read it and you want to like Ugh, and throw it against the wall. That's why I wrote my book too. A lot of sex and love addict books and sex books are really dark and they're mm-hmm. disturbing and it makes you even more depressed at times. So read my book, listen to the audiobook. It's like a it's like I said, a television series. Or reach out to me. Jump on a meeting. There's so many meetings all over the world on Zoom. And also just because it has the word sex in it and you don't have one night stands and you don't cheat on your partner, you could still be a sex and love addict. The sex side of this addiction is, like I said, using your sexuality to manipulate and control and have power over others. That could look like in a marriage where you use your sexuality to get something from your partner to manipulate them in some way. You know, it is the porn side. It's masturbating when you have a feeling or in fantasy, it's one night stands, swiping left and right, looking for that person to complete you, going from relationship to relationship and overlapping them and cheating like I used to do. Or the love addiction side, are you trying to go after that unavailable person that is not showing up for you, but you keep taking their crumbs, the teeny little bit of attention they give you? Are you going back to toxic relationships over and over and over again? Do you say, I'm not going to go out with that person and then find yourself texting them later. You know, is it going into fantasy about someone? Is it becoming even sexually and sex and love anorexic where you've been hurt and you shut down and you haven't been in a relationship for two years? So if any Mm. of that stuff rings true, look into this. It will save your life. It saved my life. I have no toxic relationships in my life. Every single friendship now shows up for me because I show up for them. I show up for myself. I'm in a marriage that I've been with this person for 17 years. I got recovery while in this relationship. So it's not like I went out and found my perfect person that doesn't exist. And I now have a healthy relationship where I then can mirror it for my child. So Mm -hmm. in the end, if you have any toxic relationships, if you have any drama in your relationships, look into this. It can change your life. And I'm living proof of it. If you would have met me 12 years ago, I'm a completely different person. So you can change. You can go into your life and not 
lean into flirting, intriguing, getting attention all the time. And you can be free of this. And as a woman, especially, I can walk out into the world and no one hits on me. No one flirts with me. And it is the most freeing feeling as a woman. Like I cannot even (laughs) tell you where it's like, nobody's trying to take my energy. And it's just so empowering. And I'm so grateful I did this work. I'm so grateful I wrote the book. I do secret life podcasts and help other people stir their addictions and their secrets and that I get to talk to you and share it with your listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm so happy for you that this program has truly saved your life and transformed everything for for you. And I would love, I, I definitely want to ask you more about your book and your podcast so the listeners can mm-hmm. connect, um, you know, and dive in a little bit deeper. Before I do that, I would love mm-hmm. to just switch gears a little bit and ask you just a few of our rapid fire questions for yeah. the to get to know you. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So my first one for you is what is your top wellness tip? Uh, my top wellness is praying every morning, even to a God you don't understand. You don't even have to believe in God. But there's something about hitting your knees and turning your life over to something bigger than you that gets you out of ego and humbles humbles you or humbles me, you know, that has really turned my life around as well. I'm not religious in any sense, but I do have a God of my understanding. I think that's so important. And I think we often neglect the spiritual health. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's something that's so, so important. Yeah, it's changed. It's changed my life. I mean, that emotional sobriety is what you need. And the one place to get it is if you turn your life over to something bigger than your own self. I love that. Now on a totally separate note, where is your favorite travel destination? Oh my God, I have so many, but I, oh my God, I don't know. There's so many. <laughs> I, um, I think my favorite is Barcelona. I love Barcelona. I love the food. I love the culture. I love shopping there. I love the architecture. Every time I go there, it's like, it's my favorite place in the world. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It, it's a beautiful city. I went when yeah. I was maybe 15 or 16 and I'm dying to go back as an adult. Maybe oh, so yeah, uh, just the best. It's such a beautiful city. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, the animal, I'd probably be like an otter. So I could swim all day because I love water and <laughs> I love seafood. So it just seems like it would be like such a beautiful life to be swimming and like eating seafood all day and that's it. That's all I would be doing. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I've gone to the zoo, the otters are always the ones who are having the most fun. Yeah. Know. Don't they look so sweet? And they're like always <laughs> in a good mood, which I am not always in a good mood. So that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, It's something to aspire to. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> if you could master a totally new skill, what would that be? I think I feel like Well, singing for one, I cannot sing at all, but I also, I'm really proud of myself for writing the book. I got offered to have a ghostwriter and I'm dyslexic and I have ADHD, but it just felt if I allowed someone else to write this book, it wouldn't be from me to the reader. So I really wrote it in my voice, which is not always grammarly correct or correct in, in, in how you write a book. So I'm really proud of myself for trying a different profession. You know, I've been an actor for so long and had people give me my dialogue and for me to write my story and put it out there in a way where I'm really proud of it. I, I feel like I've done a huge thing for my learning disability and that anybody can do anything. You just got to be willing to like put yourself out there and it not be perfect and get help. I had an editor, right? So we can always get help where we need help. 
So yeah, that's it. <laughs> I love that. I, I I think there's something so empowering too about telling your story in your own words. Mm-hmm. And I think hearing it from you, I think it makes the book even more impactful. And we really feel, even though it's through, the, you know, through the eyes of Roxanne, the readers really feel like they are getting to know you and your story. And I think, I, I do think there's something so powerful in that. It was. It was definitely, I mean, to have my good friends read it and go, oh my God, it felt like I was having a conversation with you, Brie. You know, I was like, oh, that's part, that's exactly what I want to hear. But then even when I had to do the audiobook you know, and acted out uh, when they were like, okay, now you have to record the audiobook. I was like, what? Huh? <laughs> what do you mean? They're like, yeah, the author reads it. And, and I'm like, can't we find an actor? And they're like, you're an actor. And I'm like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to <laughs> read it. And it was just, it was painful. It was like two and a half weeks of recording and the most painful moments in my life. And I'm very proud I did that. And it was in my own voice. I, I don't think it would have been so another healing layer for me if it was like a ghostwriter and then I'm reading it. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. Well, I truly enjoyed it. And I, I do think that it's even more impactful, you know, when it comes directly from you like that. So I can't wait to check out the audiobook too and kind of, you know, explore that layer a little bit more. Uh, my <laughs> final question for you from the rapid fires, um, what's next on your bucket list? Well, like I said, I'm writing the follow-up book to Secret Life. I've been doing Secret Life podcasts and have some amazing episodes coming out about gaming that just came out and hating your own ethnicity and all that. So I'm really excited about those episodes coming out. But yeah, I'm just auditioning, hitting the pavement. We wrote the Secret Life, you know, the book. We wrote a pilot for it for television that's getting shopped around. So honestly, I'm just showing up every day and just seeing what's in front of me, which sometimes is hard for a very type A person. And being a mom, you know, I'm just a mom too. I I love my son. It, I never thought this was a role I would get so much authentic joy and get triggered at the same time. So it's like this balance of my son triggering me and then me going through the process of healing that and that that joy of watching this person that I'm trying to help become a whole person. It's just beautiful. So yeah, you know, more writing, more rewrites, more recording, and then auditioning like crazy because I'm a working actress and that's what you do. You have a job and then you're out of a job again and you have to, and I'm, I'm working with clients all over the world. I work with people that can't go into the, the room. So I coach, I sober coach them in recovery and sex and love addiction. So that's been unbelievable to have that experience as well. That is amazing and just such a such an amazing way to be of service. And I'm excited for your follow-up book and for the for the TV pilot as well. That is just so amazing. I absolutely love everything that you're doing. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your book, where they can find it, and of course about the podcast and anywhere else that they can connect with you? Yeah, if you want to connect with me, reach out on Instagram. That's the place I answer the most at the Brianne Davis. The podcast is called Secret Life. We sh- You share your secret. My whole concept is tell me your secret and I'll tell you mine. And we have everybody come on every ethnicity, race, religion, sexuality, come on and share their secrets. And we have really dark ones from mostly anonymous guests. I changed the name, and but my, my first anonymous guest was this 
woman in New York, she shot herself in the chest with a shotgun because she couldn't reach perfectionism. And she walks me through it. And there's these beautiful shares. And the point of it is that we are not alone. We all have the same struggles. We handle it a different way. And it's letting go of these secrets that keep us sick. So that's a huge thing for me right now. And it's Secret Life Podcast. And you can go to secretlifenovel.com and get signed copies of my book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. Or you can go on Amazon right now and get it there too. Yeah. And if you want to read any of my articles, they're on secretlifenovel.com. And yeah, that's it. Well, that's I'm going to make sure to link all of that in the show notes. Listeners should definitely check out your podcast to learn a little bit more. The book is fantastic. And Brianne, I just want to say so much. Thank you for coming on and for sharing your story and your wisdom with us today. This has been truly an impactful conversation and I've so enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to help other people see that this disease is really killing our society and and that there is a way out and you are not alone and many people struggle with this and there's no shame in it so thank you for letting me share about sex and love addiction and my journey and hopefully it will help somebody else that's listening what an incredible conversation i loved chatting with brianne and felt like we got into so many great topics in this interview I think that there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to sex and love addiction, especially based on what the media portrays. And I think it's important to take a look at some of our own unhealthy behaviors around our relationships, romantic and otherwise. Brianne's book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, is really informative on this subject, but it's also a total page turner, so I definitely recommend checking it out. I have linked her book in the show notes, along with Brianne's podcast and other information. In the interest of saving my voice, we are going to skip this week's Ask Me Anything segment, but if you have a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming episode, please feel free to send it my way. As always, thank you for tuning in and for being a part of the Wellness and Wonderlist community. If you have a topic you'd like us to explore in a future episode, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Wellness and Wanderlust blog or by email at Valerie at Wellness and You can lend your support to the show by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in from so that others can find the show better. It really does mean the world to me as a podcaster and it only takes a few minutes out of your day. So if you find yourself tuning in regularly or this show has really made an impact on you, I would love to hear what you have to say. Now, I hope you all have a wonderful day. Can't wait to see you next week.